Good morning, Grace Toronto. I'd ask you to draw your conversations to a close. We're uh, about to enter a time of reading and teaching and learning from God's Word. And uh, this, this week, you may have noticed in your bulletins, uh, we're, we're not in the book of Acts anymore. We are actually taking a break. We're going to be, uh, for the next five Sundays, including today, looking at uh, five encounters with Jesus uh, in preparation for Easter. So this is kind of like our Lent, our Lent series. Um, and so uh, if you're like me, you may have grown up in a church that, uh, that doesn't practice Lent. Um, I was unsure what Lent exactly means. Um, and so uh, Lent is a period of 40 days that begins with Ash Wednesday, which was this past Wednesday, and ends with Easter. And uh, I know, I've noticed it's become a little bit trendy um, on social media to, to kind of share, like, what are you, what are you Lenting, right? Like some people, they, they like to share, I'm, I'm giving up social media, or like I'm giving up Netflix or chocolate or whatever. Um, and that's, that's great, uh, but, but it doesn't actually quite get to the core of Lent because Lent isn't just about giving up something for the sake of giving it up. Uh, Lent is about solemn reflection and repentance. Uh, as we look towards Easter, as we look towards the cross, uh, the hope is that as we uh, eliminate something that we value, something that maybe takes up our time, uh, that, that we would then use that time to turn towards God uh, and to seek his presence. And so if you're participating in Lent individually or not, we're going to participate in it corporately as a church uh, as we look at these, these five stories, these five encounters with Jesus uh, with an attitude, hopefully, of humility and repentance. And so with that, I'd like to invite Gwen up to read our scripture. Today's reading is from Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, Gwen. I'd buy a big, tall house with rooms by the dozen, right in the middle of town. A fine tin roof with real wooden floors below. There would be one long staircase just going up and one even longer coming down. And one more leading nowhere, just for show. I'd fill my yard with chicks and turkeys and geese and ducks for the town to see and hear. And with each loud cheep and squawk and honk and quack, would land like a trumpet on the ear, as if to say, here lives a wealthy man, if I were a rich man. That's from the classic 1964 musical Fiddler on the Roof. Now, perhaps a tin roof with wooden floors, a yard filled with chickens, uh, isn't our idea of wealth in, the, in our modern day and age, but it's a lot closer to what wealth looked like in Jesus' day. And the accumulation of wealth, of property, of status, of money, isn't this why we submit ourselves to the daily grind? Isn't this why we allow ourselves to be stressed out all the time from work? So we can be secure, so we can live a good life. And when we rub up against this passage, we rub up against the words of Jesus here, they hit hard, don't they? They make us a little bit worried, perhaps. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You've got to say amen or you've got to say ouch. So what's going on here? What are we going to do about this text? What are we going to do, we who live in Toronto, who live relatively wealthy lives compared to the vast majority of the people on this planet? What do we do with a story like this? Well, I'm going to try to make the case that Jesus and the Bible make the case that money and wealth is spiritually dangerous. That's point number one. Money and wealth is spiritually dangerous. Secondly, why are we prone to these dangers? Why are we prone to these dangers? And third, with the help of the young rich ruler, we're going to see what we can do about it. So first point, money and wealth are spiritually dangerous. Well, like I said, the most famous And the most well-known verse from this passage is verse 24. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus mean by that? Well, it's a metaphor of impossibility, right? The camel, uh, one of the largest land animals probably an Israelite would have ever seen in their lives. The needle, probably the smallest or close to the smallest man-made item. So you see, it's impossible. It's like saying, when pigs fly. It's like saying, a snowball's chance in hell. Um, so is Jesus saying, if you're wealthy, you cannot enter the kingdom of God? Well, no. <laughs> we can just read our Bibles and we can see that there are many people in the kingdom of God who have wealth and did great things for the kingdom of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea. We can go on. So he's not saying that. The proposition in verse 23 is not one of impossibility, but of great difficulty. And so when we hear Jesus say, it's hard for the rich to be saved, uh, we, we kind of agree, right? Uh, especially living here in North America. Uh, we kind of look at the rich and we're like, yeah, they're, they're kind of bad people, right? We don't really like them. Uh, they're sort of responsible for the inequality that we see, right? Uh, it should be hard. It should be hard for them to get saved. 
Um, but that's not what Peter and the disciples are saying when they say, uh, you know, who can, who can be saved? They're, they're shocked. They're astonished. This is one of those moments we have to take a step back. We have to avoid the temptation to read this passage with our modern lens on. We shouldn't always assume that the Bible is speaking to us in our terms in our present culture. Because for the disciples, to be rich, to have wealth, to have property, that's, that's who is blessed. That's who had the favor of God upon them. And so, um, if you're rich, God's favor is on you, clearly. And so the disciples are looking at Jesus and they're baffled. Because if the people who are in favor with God, the people who are blessed, if God is saying, it's hard for them to enter. Well, then what's he saying to the disciples? Well, they're like, we have no chance. We were just fishermen. We left our nets. We didn't have houses and money and jobs to leave behind. You can kind of see that, right, in Peter's response. He's like, look, we've left everything. And what's Jesus say? He says, with man, with humanity, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And isn't that the story of the Bible? See, Jesus is assuming you've read your Bible, uh, especially your Old Testament, um, and you know that no one, not a single person, is good enough on their own to enter the kingdom of God, no matter what their wealth status is. Psalm 130, verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And so here's the problem. Here's why I think Jesus is highlighting for us the dangers of money and wealth. The things, or the thing that keeps us from God, the sin that we're prone to, the gods that our heart worships. Money simply amplifies those things. Money is like the gateway drug to our idols. Money makes accessing our idols so much easier. You want power, you want fame, security, status, reputation, fill in the blank. What does your heart really long for? My heart longs for silly things like collector Star Wars Lego sets. I don't know what your heart longs for, but I bet, I bet money can get it for you. So let me give you four ways that I see this playing out in the young rich ruler. First, security. The young rich ruler had much security in his possessions. He doesn't need to rely on anyone. He doesn't need to uh, rely on anything because he's got a lot of stuff. And money has this ability to make us think that and believe that if we just have enough of it, we'll be okay. Right? It makes you think, if, 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 if I lose my job right now, I've got enough money to survive. I'll be all right. I feel like I'm ready to take on the world. And, and here's the thing. There are a lot worse things in life than losing your job. And, and money isn't going to prepare you for those things. Are you ready for a debilitating disease? Are you ready for the death of a loved one? Are you ready for the betrayal of a friend or a colleague who you thought was in your corner? Were you ready for the last three years of a pandemic, months and months of isolations, the deep divisions that we felt in our society and in our church over vaccinations and government insight? Security from money, it's an illusion. Secondly, Self-sufficiency, money has the ability to make you feel like you can take care of yourself. And the danger here 
with the young rich ruler is it's made him incredibly self-righteous. See, he genuinely believes when he goes to Jesus that he has kept all of the commands since his youth. He's done well for himself. He's able to provide for himself. He's got no need to rely on family or friends or charity. And in this blessed state of, of experiencing God's favor, he says, yes, I'm a good person. I'm doing well. God's favor is on me. See, I think we actually believe this today too. Right? If I do good, if I'm a good person overall, somehow that good is going to come back to me. It's, it's a really nice sounding principle. Uh, unfortunately, it's not biblical. Just read the book of Job. Um, you can see. Thirdly, money can enslave you. The young rich ruler went away sad. He went away grieved. He had come to the source of life, and he had to walk away. Why? Well, because his ruler was his wealth. See, I mentioned before how there are things a lot worse than losing your job. And what is it that's going to get you through those things? It's not your stuff. It's not your bank account. Okay, no amount of houseplants is going to make COVID better. And by now, half of them are dead anyways, right? So... So what's going to get you through those things? It's faith. It's character. It's joy in Christ. That's what's going to get you through the worst things in life. I've been a Gigi uh, leader here at this church for, uh, for over six years now, and uh, I've sat with many people over the years, many congregants here. Um, and what's the most common thing that we struggle with? Hmm? What's the most common thing people ask for prayer for? They're stressed. They're so stressed and it's mostly because of work. It's mostly because they're just trying to get one rung up on the company ladder. It's because they're trying to just grind it out for another two to three more months, which turns into two to three more semesters, which turns into two to three more years. And then they'll have enough. For what? You, you finish the sentence. Then you can finally go on that bucket list trip to the Maldives. You can finally eat at that Michelin star restaurant. You can finally buy that bag, that pair of shoes. I don't know. I don't know what you guys want. (laughs) But whatever that is that you think is going to justify all of that work and all of that stress, all of the tears, you're pouring so much of your time and work and effort and anxiety into this, that guess what? You don't have time to work on your character. You don't have time to meditate on God's word. You don't have time to do the hard work of spiritual growth actual, real spiritual growth. You wish you had more time for God. Or maybe, maybe you have the time, but you're so mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted when you come home after work, when you turn off the laptop. It's not fruitful. Your time with God's not fruitful. You see how money can enslave us, and it opens us up to being enslaved by our desires. Fourthly, last one, money makes you proud. The young rich ruler, he can't admit to Jesus that he hadn't actually kept the commandments. Okay, I'm going to get into this a little bit later on. See, his pride, his inflated sense of self-worth would not allow him to admit that he wasn't all that he thought he was. The single most important life skill that you can have. Hey, get your pens out. Single most important life skill you can have is repentance. It's the ability to admit your mistakes. It's the ability to admit that you're wrong. Uh, and to be able to do it and not take years to do. To, to have it not like pulling teeth. 
It's the single most important thing in any marriage, any friendship, any relationship. It's how you become wise. It's how you grow in maturity as a human being. Repentance. And nothing destroys your ability to repent more than pride. And nothing inflates your pride more than money. See, if you have made money in the past few years and you, you're doing better than the average, you know, you're doing better financially than the average Canadian, um, what does your heart say? It doesn't say, I'm better financially. No, it says, I'm better. I'm better than you. I'm better than most people. If you're smart with your money, you, in, you invested well, you, you saved when you could have spent, what does your heart say? It doesn't say, I'm smarter with my money. It says, I'm smarter. I'm smarter than you. See, do you see how money magnifies, it intensifies our pride? In a season of my life, in the past, I worked as a line chef at a restaurant, and one of the things I learned very early on in the kitchen was that the most common mistake that home cooks make is under-seasoning their food, especially with salt. People often under-season with salt. Uh, and, and salt has this ability to make food uh, not just taste better, right? It does taste a lot better. But it actually makes the food taste more like itself. Okay, you season your, your beef steak with a good amount of salt, it's beefier. You season your, your mushrooms that you're sauteing with a good amount of salt, you get that rich umami flavor. Okay, it's enhanced by the salt. It makes it better. It makes it more intense. This is what money does to our sinful desires. It makes it more intense. It, makes it, it enhances them. It magnifies them. So the question then is, is why? This is point number two if you're tracking along. Why, why does money have uh, this effect on us? And to do that, we're going we're gonna to look a little bit more closely at the text. We're going to look at the young rich ruler and his conversation with Jesus. So, Jesus, or the man comes to Jesus, and he asks a great question, doesn't he? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the right question to ask, isn't it? It's the right question to ask Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, is pretty baffling, actually. Right? He says, keep the Ten Commandments. <laughs> now, why doesn't Jesus just say, you need to have faith in me, as the Messiah. Hmm? By grace, you'll inherit eternal life. Why doesn't Jesus say that? Isn't, isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the right answer? Well, it is the right answer, yes. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. So why doesn't Jesus just say that? Two reasons, I think. One, uh, Jesus is actually not wrong, <laughs> theologically, to say that if you keep the commandments... If you have lived and live a perfectly righteous life, the life that God intended all human beings to live as his image bearers, if you do that, yeah, you're, you're in the kingdom of God. You're saved. But as I mentioned before, we know that no one can live that life. No one is good, Romans chapter 3, 23. We're all sinful. But the deeper reason, I think, that Jesus says what he says it's because he knows this man's heart. He knows that even if he says to him, you need to receive grace, my grace through faith, the man would just laugh and say, I don't, I don't need grace. 
I've kept the commands. I've kept the commandments. I've kept them my whole life since I was a, since I was a kid. Now you can just ask any of the parents in the room with young kids or any of our GT Kids volunteers how well their kids keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, you'll know this is just a ridiculous claim. <clears throat> so see, he's saying, I, I, don't have, I don't have need for grace. Do you see the pride there? Do you see the self-righteous attitude? Jesus is trying to show him, yes, <laughs> yes, you do need grace. And so he tells him in verse 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And again, we're reading this and we're like, what? It's shocking. It's baffling. Is Jesus saying we have to sell all of our possessions to enter into the kingdom of God, to have eternal life? No, he's not. Okay, take a deep breath. You don't have to sell the new iPhone you bought this year to be saved, okay? So what is he saying? Why does he, why does he require this man to give up everything? Well, I think he's saying it because he's testing the man's claim. Oh, you follow all the Ten Commandments. Wonderful. That's great. Let's look at the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. You will love nothing in your life more than God. How are we doing with that one? See, Jesus goes after his wealth. He goes after his possessions, his money, because that's his life. That's what his whole life is centered around. That's what his heart is centered on. Now, just to make this even clearer, there's another encounter that Jesus has that's quite similar to this one. Uh, It's in John chapter four, the Samaritan woman at the well. I'm just gonna paraphrase. Uh, Jesus goes to the well, and there's a woman drawing water. And he says, oh, I have the water you need. I have living water. I have the water that gives you eternal life. And she says, oh, give me this water, sir. And he says, okay, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't don't have a husband. And he says, oh, I know you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the person that you're currently living with now, he's not your husband. What's Jesus doing? (laughs) It's baffling. (laughs) See, he doesn't go after the money with the Samaritan woman because that's not her problem. What's her problem? Romance, relationships, love, men. See, her heart is captivated by something else. So Jesus doesn't go to the woman at the well. He doesn't go to or respond to the rich young ruler that they just need to have faith in him as the Messiah because they wouldn't even know what that means if he said it. He's trying to show them what it means. He's pointing them to where the cancer is in their heart. Grace Toronto, your heart will always find something to hope in. Always. This is just how we are made as human beings. Everyone has something on which your entire being, your entire identity is fixed on. Something that your, your deepest longings, your hopes, your dreams is anchored to. And when you encounter Jesus, like the Samaritan woman at the well, like the young rich ruler, He's going to ask you to take that, and he's going to ask you to fix it on him instead. He asks the young rich ruler, do you love me enough that you'd be willing to sell everything you have? And not only that, 
Would you love the poor enough that you'd give them the proceeds and come and follow me? He knows he can't do it. He knows he can't do it because it's his, it's his identity. His wealth is his living water. See, if your heart longs for anything other than Jesus, wealth, romance, prestige, reputation, relationships, it'll destroy you. It'll make you dishonest. It'll make you shallow, greedy, prideful. And even if you succeed, even if you get the thing that you think you need most to make your life whole, you'll be incredibly self-centered and self-righteous like the man in our text. So is money... Is wealth your living water? How do you know? Well, I think there's a few, a few tests. First, the envy test. When you meet people who have more than you, live a nicer life than you, have a nicer car, have a nicer house, have a nicer family, are you envious of them? Do they get under your skin for no reason other than that they're living something better, a better life? Well, money might be your living water. Another test, the buyer miser test. Do you get great pleasure in buying stuff? You go shopping, you feel so good when you spend your money. Or the opposite, you feel so good when you don't spend any money for like days. (laughs) Money might be spiritually killing you. Or the anxiety test, does money dominate what you think about? You constantly think about how how am I going to make more? How am I going to get ahead? It's stressing you out. You're losing sleep over it. Money might be your living water. So what do we do about it? Point number three, what do we do about it? Well, I think this passage tells us we need to look to the young rich ruler. Now you say, well, why would we do that? Uh, What's the point of looking to him? He came to Jesus. He asked the right question. He still got turned away. He went home sad. But I'm not talking about that young rich ruler. See, I titled this sermon The Young Rich Rulers. It wasn't a typo. It was intentional because there's another young rich ruler in this passage. Jesus, around this time in his ministry, he's probably about 31 or so, young man. Jesus, the young rich ruler who had far more than this young man. He left his glory, immeasurable riches of heaven, Paul in Philippians 2 says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. The most incredible part of this passage I've left here to the end, verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. We can imagine what Jesus was thinking in this moment. Oh, my friend, my brother, I was also rich, but I gave it up. I was stripped of my heavenly glory to be incarnate, to be born a human being. I'm about to go to the cross. Without a penny to my name, I'll be stripped of my closest friends, my garments, my dignity, my flesh, 
my very life. Why? For people like you. For people like us. Church, do you see the immense generosity of God when you read the gospel? Do you see his generosity when you look at Jesus? There is a young rich ruler who gave up more than you could ever know, more riches than the world has ever seen because he loved you, because he wants your heart. That's security. That's where you find your value. That's where you find your worth. That's where you find your living water. Jesus says, leave it all behind. You'll have treasure in heaven. Now you ask, well, what's treasure in heaven? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think, firstly, it means that Jesus is your treasure. Okay, we look at this young ritual and we say, I don't want to part with my stuff. And Jesus says, look at what I'm giving you. Grace, forgiveness, eternal security. You want to hang on to your wealth that rust and moth will destroy? What I'm offering to you is imperishable, eternal riches. It's permanent. can't be destroyed. Once you have that, once you find that, money is nothing. You can give it away freely. Why? Because you found something better. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a man who found buried treasure in a field. So he went home and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Do you see the logic? When you find that which is most valuable, what you thought had value, it's nothing. My wife and I, we, we love eating instant noodles. It's like the easiest quick meal. It's somewhat nutritious. <laughs> um, and, uh, and my wife loves eating fish balls. Okay, so fish balls for the, the non Asian people here. <laughs> fish balls, it's like minced up fish and seafood and shrimp. It's like in a little ball. You buy it frozen at the Asian grocery store. Um, I know it doesn't sound that great, but it's, it's good. <laughs> um, and, uh, and last June, uh, Helen and I, we, we were in Singapore uh, with my immediate family for my cousin's wedding. And it was her first time in Singapore, and one of the things that she discovered there was the fresh fishball noodle soup. And if you have had it, I know there are a few Singaporeans in here, if you've had it, you know that fresh fishball is like the Rolls Royce of fishballs. Okay? It totally ruined fishballs for her. Okay? She, she won't eat it anymore. Like the frozen ones here, she's like, they're trash, they're garbage. They're absolutely worthless. Why? Because she's found something unimaginably better. See, that's what the kingdom of God is like. You found the ultimate, <laughs> you found the ultimate fishball, okay? <laughs> you, you found the thing that makes everything else look like nothing. That's what, that's what Paul can say one chapter later, Philippians chapter three, he says, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count them as rubbish, trash, garbage, have absolutely no value whatsoever because I have Christ. See, Paul isn't exaggerating. This isn't a hyperbole. He's, this, is not, this is not even an extreme example of someone who's, whose faith is, is so strong. Paul's not someone who's like, oh, he's a super, super mature Christian, okay? No, this is the norm. This is what happens 
This is the reality of what happens when you encounter the real Jesus. This is what happens when you realize that he's actually more valuable than anything that this world could offer you. So, so Jesus is your treasure in heaven, but also to have treasure in heaven is to recognize and know that you're his treasure in heaven. And what does that mean? In Luke chapter 10, uh, there's this really interesting story. Jesus sends out the 72 disciples out and they, uh, they come back and they're really excited. They're really pumped because uh, they've been casting out demons and like even the demons obey us, the evil spirits obey us. And Jesus says, don't be proud of that. Don't rejoice about that. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. See, the high priest of Israel wore a breastplate over his heart with the 12 names of the children of Israel engraved on precious stones. Now, who is our high priest? According to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest. And in Isaiah 49, God says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she, uh, she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What's God saying there? He's saying, if you make my son your treasure, I will make you my treasure. I see you now as radiant, beautiful, righteous, because you're my son. You're my daughter. Does that give you goosebumps when you think about that? You think about that until it makes you weep and fall to your knees. That God would love me like that. That God would love you like that. See, there's a security that you can't buy. There is a freedom that can't be purchased by money. There's a love that runs deeper than any human relationship can offer you. Do you see the love that God has for you? Do you see the ends that he's gone to to bring him, to bring you to himself? Do you see the immeasurable value of your treasure in heaven? And if you don't believe, do you see the kind of security and hope and identity and freedom that comes from knowing Jesus? Do you see the resources that he provides? <laughs> Application. Well, you may be thinking, this is all very like high level. This is like typical sermon, you know, generalizations. Just tell me, how much do I have to give away? <laughs> give me a number, right? <laughs> I, know, I know some of you are thinking that. I would be thinking that too. Give me a number, right? And uh, if you're asking that question, just give me a number. Just tell me how much. Uh, first off, it's the wrong question. <laughs> uh, at least it's the wrong initial question for you to ask. Uh, the first question you need to ask is, why don't I want to give away more than I want to? And the answer to that, hopefully, uh, I've spent the last 25 minutes trying to tell you. You're not, lo- you're not, you're not looking to the young, rich ruler. <laughs> the one who gave up the infinite riches of heaven to love you. And now he's asking you to take your small, finite riches and give it to him. Be willing, unlike the gentleman in our passage, to treat your wealth, your possessions, like they don't belong to you, but that they belong to Jesus. For the sake of your love for God and for the sake of your love for your neighbor. And if you're struggling with this, then I would encourage you, look Look deep into the heart of the gospel. That's where you're going to find the answer. 
But the question remains still, <laughs> how much should I give? And uh, biblically, there's two answers to this, I think. One in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Okay, the Old Testament, the tithe, right? Most of us know, 10%, right? That's the benchmark. Uh, so if you give away 10% of your income right now uh, to charity, church, wealth, uh, etc., cetera, um, congrats. You've ascended to the level of the Old Testament. In other words, don't pat yourself on the back because in the New Testament, there's only one word, and that word is sacrifice, sacrificial giving. You see, Jesus did not tithe his blood for you. You can tithe your blood and, and live, right? Canadian Blood Services, go donate blood. It's not going to kill you. I promise you, it won't kill you. But Jesus didn't tithe his blood. No, he gave up everything, gave his life for you. In other words, if your giving is not impinging on the way that you live, if it's not making you make sacrifices on your habits for eating out, going on vacation, what kind of clothes you buy, what kind of baby gear you're looking at, regardless if it's not 10%. Um, see, the thing is, most Christians statistically uh, across the board give about 2% of their wealth away. And so, uh, so maybe that's you, and that's okay. Um, here's the challenge. What if next month you bump it to 3%? What would that look like? And maybe six months later, you bump it to 4%. You just doubled your giving. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it looks like for you. Okay, I don't know everyone's situation. But this is what I know. It will be a great joy to give to the degree that you've understood and to the degree that you've allowed the gospel to penetrate your heart. To the degree that you have met and understood who the young rich ruler is who gave everything away for you, in love for you. Amen. Uh, I think we have some time for maybe one or two questions. We'll see. <laughs> we do, Ryan. Uh, we do have lots of questions this morning, um, but I think we do only have time for one. Yeah. Um, so what I will do is I will provide um, this question that sort of summarizes and encapsulates most of the questions that have come in. Since money intensifies our heart's desires, if our heart's desire is to glorify God and grow his kingdom, is it then good to pursue money for God to use it? And more importantly, how do we protect ourselves against letting money itself become the idol? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you guys Part are good. A-B. You guys are good, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay, so there's nothing wrong with pursuing money, okay? Um, the Bible actually is quite positive when it comes to uh, wealth accumulation, uh, being paid for your, your, wa- like your wages for your work. Uh, you, you can read Proverbs about that. You can see it in the New Testament. Uh, but the Bible is, so the Bible sees money perhaps more positively than uh, you know, a, a socialistic society. But the flip side is the, the Bible also sees money as more negative than a free market capitalist society. And so the Bible's idea of money is, is it doesn't fit on our, our spectrum. It's, it's, it, the Bible sees it as more positive than probably we'd, we'd be willing to admit, but also m- more negative and more dangerous. Um, and so the, the challenge, I think, for us is recognizing our hearts, <laughs> our hearts are sinful. It's very hard. It's very hard to pursue money and not let it do something to your heart. Uh, maybe some of you can do it. I don't know. 
I don't think I can, <laughs> uh, but maybe some of you can. Uh, so how, how, do you, how do you guard yourself from that? How do you protect yourself from that? Um, I mean, I think you just read the Bible, honestly. Like, look, look at this story. Really think and meditate about this story. Um, it's, it's very clear. As you encounter Jesus in the Gospels, uh, Jesus talks about money more than any topic, by the way. If you read his teachings, he talks a lot about money. So money is very, <laughs> it's very important to Jesus, too. Um, but I think the more that you see Jesus as more beautiful, as more valuable, as more worth what this world can offer you, uh, the, the better you, position you are as a Christian uh, to be able to guard against some of those, those things that, that may come out of your heart. Uh, that, I think that's the best I can do. <laughs> um, Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Well, I, I'm just going to... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, we're <laughs> stumbling over each other. That's what happens right. when two interns are up here. That's right, yeah. It's, where's the senior pastor? <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. Uh, I was just going to say, we're going to put up a slide. If there are uh, those that have sent questions, uh, feel free to send them over to Ryan. He'll get back to you. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, let me, let me just off. pray for us. Thank you. And uh, I'll invite the worship team to come on up. Uh, Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the young rich ruler who gave it all away so that we could come into relationship with you. God, would you help us in this day and age to consider what that would look like? Would you help us to see your generosity displayed? Would you help us to see our treasure in heaven as more valuable than anything we have in this world. We can only do it by the power of your spirit. We can only do it with you, Jesus. So would you help us to do that, help your church to do that um, as we reflect, as we sing, as we go from here, God. Would you be with us? Um, help us to be generous. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.